Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Usually um, I find that when I'm talking to folk and people find out that you uh, that I'm a scientist, uh, they automatically assume that I believe in evolution. But um, I think that the evidence overall now, there's a huge groundswell of modern discoveries that clearly point to creation and that evolution is absolutely impossible. I was also having a chat just um, a few days ago with um, a gentleman and um, as we were talking, he said, well, look, you know, I don't believe that God exists. And I, I listened to him for a while and one of his arguments was he, he'd had some bad things happen, lost some um, folk that were dear to him and he, you know, questioned where was God at, at that time. And he also then also, uh, related some experiences with a, um, a a church minister that had been very judgmental of him and and um, his uh, mother and his parents family and I guess putting this all together he he you know he'd come to this conclusion that he he didn't you know believe in God but then as I just listened and uh, talked and I said you know well I, I believe in God and he he then sort of just swung his hand around. We were standing outside um, and we were surrounded by gardens. And he said, but, you know, one thing I questioned, and as he waved his arm in sort of a spreading gesture was, how did this come about? How, how did all this life come about? And then he mentioned, and the universe. He said, I have questions about that. And I thought that, that was very good. He, he was very, very honest. So obviously he'd had these experiences that in some ways had turned him um, uh, to have the view that, yeah, he didn't believe that there was a real God. But then he thought, well, on the other hand, how do you explain the origin of this? Now, of course, you know, many scientists and uh, young people today are being inculcated with the idea that there's this mechanical model that we call evolution that somehow, and uh, the Big Bang Theory is, I guess, is part of this whole uh, picture of a mechanical model for our existence, that somehow um, inanimate brute forces created all the amazing structures and properties of the stars and galaxies in the universe, the amazing structures that are out there, as well as the all the chemical elements as well. So remember, this theory has to account for how we produce all the elements, you know, hydrogen, helium, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, gold, iron, silver, and so forth. All these, uh, all the different elements that we know e exist. And you know, somehow all these elements with all these different properties and, and the way that they then can interact with one another, all all this came about by blind, mechanical, just sort of somehow interactions of of, of energy. And, I mean, when, when we, you know, sit and think about it, we really don't even know what 
energy is in many ways and the fields, the energy fields that can exist if they're heat radiation, then again it's a combination of electric and magnetic fields that are carrying what we call the heat energy. There's, there's so many things. What are, the, what are these fields? So when we have this mechanical model that put all these things together, and then, of course, when we come to the, the living organisms and the amazing codes uh, that are there, like the DNA code or language, DNA language, and then the, the prescription or the instructions that are encoded in this DNA to make every living thing and all the different sets of instructions that are required to do that. And, of course, the, the big excuse that uh, you know, scientists have for perhaps pushing this is their belief in the long ages, that everything is very old. And one of the uh, issues with this, of course, is, uh, and I, I found it quite fascinating, is trilobites. Now, I studied geology back in 1964, and I, it was uh, taught back then without heavy underpinnings of evolution. It was, it was just taught more as an observational science. These are the fossils that we find. We find them in these particular layers. And sure, the layers were assigned different ages, but in actual fact, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on the actual ages, in, at least at the university where I attended. Uh, the evidence was more that these fossils characterised the particular layers and being able to identify key fossils to identify the particular key layers in the geologic column. But one of the creatures that fascinated me were trilobites. And I had a friend who actually uh, found some uh, trilobites um, independently. And these are... uh, a highly complex animal. Now, while they're a real challenge to evolutionists, why they're a major problem for evolutionists is that they are found very, very low in the geologic column. Um, a matter of fact, they can occur in layers where below them there's there's virtually nothing, uh, maybe a, a very few, very uh, primitive sort of algal-type uh, fossils, but very little below them. And then suddenly, in these fossil layers, we have this um, really complex creature. Now, trilobites belong to a wonderfully varied group of extinct marine creatures, and they belong to a a, um, a group called the arthropods because they've got jointed limbs. And so this is the same group as insects and millipedes, centipedes, spiders, scorpions and crabs and prawns. But And so they're, they're the same family as these, which are quite complex animals that have quite complex, um, uh, you know, gen- uh, DNA Uh, extremely complex DNA um, in them. And so for these trilobites to have that complex DNA so early and so low in the geologic column is really a major problem. Um, And they had um, uh, an exoskeleton, so their shell was sort of their skeleton. It was divided into three three parts, and hence the name trilobites. They were trilobed. They had um, 
a, uh, a central part and they had a, a head. And the, in the head, of course, was the, um, these amazing eyes. And um, there's been quite a bit of research has been done with, um, in terms of these eyes. In fact, a, a very important um, paper was published in Scientific Reports, um, which is a, you know, a, a leading uh, scientific journal, I think it's part of Nature, uh, back in August uh, 2020. And it was insights into a 429 million year old compound eye. So according to these scientists, the eye was 420 million years old, but extremely complex. And so it was a particular uh, uh, species of uh, trilobite. And what made it very interesting for the scientists to study was it, the type of eye that it had was essentially the same as modern compound eyes. And they found fossils that show very excellent or excellent uh, preservation um, of, these, uh, of these structures. And, and this is it. The, the structure is, is really complex. They've got lens cone assemblies, which are like optic fibres that guide the light into patches of light-sensitive pigment cells. And then proteins inside the pigment cells capture the individual light photons. And this causes the protein structure to temporarily change shape. And this change in shape opens little channels for different Ions. Now, what I mean by an ion is these are charged atomic particles that actually sort of move down these channels. And so via this highly complex process, chemical signals are converted into electrical ones, and these travel along the optic nerve to the brain, and here they're further processed. So, you know, it's an extremely complex process, and here we find this in these creatures that are right down near the bottom of the uh, you know, rock strata that we find, the, the geologic column. And the other thing too is that for these eyes to work in these trilobites, the lens cone eyes require very precise alignment and they need to be constructed of um, materials with the correct optical properties and each unit has to be optically shielded from its neighbour so to inhibit stray light. Um, so modern organisms with compound eyes like insects and crustaceans have many lenses. In fact, dragonflies, I was reading, have up to 28,000 lenses. And because of this, this a huge assemblage is capable of processing a huge amount of information. And, um, of course, you know, the, the insects, uh, like a dragonfly, has to navigate, find food, detect motion in light and dark. And um, when we think of this, all this information is processed in their brain. They take this information in and process it. And so the, the brains, for example, of honeybees have these sort of eyes, is the size of, of pinheads. 
So, and matter of fact, uh, compound eyes can even detect infrared and ultraviolet, and these are wavelengths of light that, you know, mammals and ourselves um, don't appear to be able to see. And one of the things that uh, came out in this uh, paper that was published in 2020, August 2020, was that the fossils contain newly discovered optical structures and the samples that they looked at, the trilobite eyes, had been very intricately preserved. And they, as I said, they had, it was a real surprise, the evolutionists, to find that they had uh, components that were pretty well identical to the uh, modern compound eyes. Um, and matter of fact, to quote... Um, the researchers, they wrote, equipped with a fully modern type of visual system, a compound eye comparable to that of living bees, dragonflies, and many diurnal uh, daytime living crustaceans. And so this was the eye of this uh, trilobite creature. And they lived, um, you know, I guess they're portrayed as crawling around the, the bottom there. They find lots of fossils of these creatures that were obviously uh, buried very rapidly to preserve them. I, again, when we find these sort of uh, things at this age, I think it's really time to challenge these slow evolutionary models over long periods of time. These are extremely complex um, mechanisms. How could they evolve without any evidence of ancestors, um, of significant ancestors, to have this highly complex visual system. And then, of course, the brain to process this system. And remember, even the structure of the brain associated with these animals has to be encoded for in the DNA. The structure to make the brain cells, to um, construct the structure of the brain, make these little iron channels, have these whole systems, and then the mechanisms whereby the animal knows or can respond to the stimuli in a way that enables us to uh, get food, to avoid danger and, and so forth, find a mate and, and so forth. Uh, as I said, uh, one of the article uh, commented that... Um, uh, Fossils um, of these trilobites uh, are found in large numbers. Um, the, this particular one was found in mudstone layer about 1.4 metres thick um, in the, the Czech Republic, and there have been um, you know, excellent uh, preservation there. One of the things that I guess uh, attracted me to trilobites were all the different uh, varieties, shapes and sizes of, of uh, trilobites that they are. Not only did they have uh, multiple jointed legs, a bit like um, you know the wood lice or pill bugs, um, they um, had you know quite uh, varied appendages uh, that came out of their body, out of the sides of the uh, head part of them usually. And of course, these are a classic examples of a creature that appears abruptly in the fossil record with no apparent ancestors. So because trilobites obviously were marine insects, they had to um, see clearly underwater 
And so we know that light uh, bends differently through uh, water compared to air. And so all these um, you know, properties must have been there in the trilobite lands to allow for that. You know, from my perspective, just this aspect alone, let alone the reproductive system of the trilobites, their digestive system, the structure of their body, um, uh, all the different body parts, their jointed uh, legs, um, tremendous amount of code required to um, encode the instructions to make all these particular body parts um, and also for them to, to work and, and particularly their, their eyes, the amazing structure of their eyes. Of course, you know, I can, you know, we can talk about examples like this that to me are so obvious that evolution can't happen. The, you can't have a creature this complex as a trilobite, with such advanced, um, for example, optical system, an eye system, um, just suddenly appearing in the fossil record right down the bottom and with no apparent ancestors. And you can't fit that into this slow, gradual change over hundreds of millions of years model. It just doesn't work. You, there's no way you can just suddenly have this huge genetic code just just forming there. And the other thing is, too, finding all these things buried and the fact that they're down the bottom there, to me, again, is just powerful evidence for a catastrophic global flood-type um, event. And I was reading uh, recently to another article that, again, points to the young age for this catastrophic event. And that was an article on folding. It was a, an article that uh, I read quite recently in a uh, creation magazine. It was called Fantastic Folds, and it was by um, a gentleman, Gavin Cox. Uh, Gavin was a, as a qualified minerals engineer, uh, works in uh, oil and gas prospecting, um, and he's worked in 14 countries working in this area. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you could find this article on the website creation.com. It's um, called Fantastic Folds. And when I look at the pictures in the article, I mean, some of these folds are just so sharp um, and they involve multiple layers, many, many layers, and they're all then folded back on themselves and so forth. And so you've got to um, imagine how can all these layers uh, bend under those conditions. And it's to me, it's just powerful evidence that these folds occurred when that material was still relatively soft. Um, and in, in his article, he talks about um, rocks and how rock uh, uh, can uh, change shape due to a stress that's called strain. And he talks about how there's different types of deformation that can occur. In the article, it said there's elastic deformation where a rock can bounce back after stress is released. And there's ductile deformation, which means the rock changes shape under stress and will not return to its original shape. 
And if rocks are stressed hard enough, they'll fracture, thus irreversibly changing, and that's brittle deformation um, that it's uh, called. And um, he talks about um, how long-age geologists, so geologists that believe that the Earth is millions of years old, imagine that stress with or without heating, acted on the rock and applied gradually for a long enough time, typically millions of years, can what they believe is can cause brittle rock to deform like plastic and folds in rocks are explained in these terms. But really does the folding require millions of years? And of course, is that really you know, possible? When we look at the flood and the flood model, the flood model fits that these, all these layers lay down while they're still soft and they, there were then massive movements in the earth and, the, um, and these folds occur in these, in these layers. To me, it just makes so much sense. Looking at just um, the, the pictures in the articles, um, you know, some of the folds are, are really sharp, like less than a 45-degree angle. So you just imagine bending rock layers back on themselves so that the angle between the two surfaces is less than 45 degrees. That's, you know, that's fantastic bending. And you, the other thing is the, uh, there's other uh, pictures in the, in the article that show, you know, I don't know, perhaps um, 30 or 40 layers, very similar layers, and they're folded in quite a, a complex way perfectly and there's you know, no evidence of any stress structures or anything like that. And some of the folds are 90 degrees or more, more than 90 degrees. Um, and yet all these layers have retained their parallelness during that time. And um, so when I look at these um, pictures and, and look at this evidence, I think the folds that we see that are all around the world, these and sharp folds as well, that are found in these rock layers in, in various places, to me just clearly point that these layers that are found all around the world that are supposedly span, you know, millions and hundreds of millions of years, were all laid down in a very short time period and while they were still underwater or very fresh, there was massive movements of the Earth's surface that the time when the mountains were pushed up. And to me, that, that makes so much sense because if these rocks are millions of years old, they're going to be very hard. And to bend them 90 degrees, um, you know, without cracking just isn't going to happen. Um, as long as if these rocks are, you know, sort of metals are, are reasonably ductile. But when you look at uh, siliceous materials um, and those sort of crystals, while they can be deformed, and, um, you know, that's the principle of your piezoelectric, you know, starters on your barbecue, those little spark generators. Um, they can't be deformed the way and the extent that we see in nature there. So when I look at these uh, problems, we've got, when we look at the issue of, of believing in creation versus evolution for scientists, that, you know, scientists have to, if they're going to continue to believe in evolution, have to allow for massive amounts of genetic information encoded in a highly complex code to have been developed very, very early on to explain creatures by 
you know, like trilobites. And and then them for them to suddenly appear, you know, without ancestors. Where where are all their ancestors? To me, you know, it's, this is just one example, but really there are millions of examples like this out there in the in the fossil record of of creatures that just you know suddenly appear of different types, all the different types of flowers, different types of flying insects. These are examples that demonstrate. There, to me, creation. You can't just generate these these highly diverse information packets in DNA just like that with huge variation. And we know that you know random mutations don't produce the the new codes that work. It, and when we do the maths, it, you know, it's impossible. There's not enough time. And not you know. Um, even if the earth if the earth was trillions of trillions of trillions of years old, there still wouldn't be enough time for all the possible combinations to work through to figure out the right one that is work going to work. But then on the other hand of that, when we look at these folded rocks, we have the evidence staring us in our face that there must have been a global flood. And it instead of spanning millions of years, it spanned a very short period of time. And so when we look at this and then when we consider the question, like the gentleman I was talking to said, well, you know, I don't believe in God, but how do we explain the origin of this? How do we explain the origin of, you know, everything living? And if you go down this mechanical model, really, do you really believe that just somehow there are some sort of mechanical processes generated the laws of physics and chemistry that generated the uh, force fields that led to the construction of matter that led to the arrangement of matter in an ordered fashion so that we have different elements we have you know 92 or 93 thereabouts that are relatively stable um, elements and that out of these elements then we can construct living things and then let alone you still have an explained consciousness but the Bible does. The Bible explains consciousness. And that's why I'm happy uh, to be a, a scientist who believes that there is a God and that God is the God explained in the Bible. It, to me, it just fits so well. And I'm meeting more and more scientists now too that are speaking out that they see the same thing. The evidence is there staring us in the face that there is a God. And as I spoke recently too, when we look at historically the evidence for the resurrection, that evidence is just overwhelming as well. And again, resurrecting Jesus from dead to life um, to being translated, it, it fits. It could have been easily disproved just by producing Jesus' body. It never happened. But by believing, as the Bible points out, we can be saved it's a great message in the Bible. I would encourage everyone listening to get hold of your Bible and, and read through it. It makes so much sense today to read, the, to read the Bible. It's supported by history. It's supported by science. It's supported by personal testimony. And it's the way to salvation and eternal life. We know our biochemistry is going to run down. We know this earth is going to run down. But the creator who made all this thing clearly stated that this was not his intention. God has plans to recreate this world, 
this universe and he wants to recreate us in us and then have a personal relationship with him. And that is done through believing in Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Read it for yourself in the Bible. You've been listening to Faith and Science. And uh, remember, if you want to re-listen to these programs, just Google uh, 3ABN Australia, or one word, .org.au, and click on the Listen button. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 